Good morning. It's been a joy to be here this weekend. And being in your worship service this morning, you you can sense uh, the energy of a church that's healthy. And for that, uh, I'm very grateful, and you should be encouraged. I'm going to ask you to join with me, please, in turning to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 15. And we read beginning with the first verse. The Word of God says this, Now we, who are strong, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Father in heaven, I do give you praise and thanks above all, for the fact that we know you. Every child of God in this room, our story is your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were blind, but now we see. We couldn't hear, but now we can. Our hearts were once stone, but now we have been given by you hearts of flesh. And upon our hearts you have written your word and we love you. And we know the story of love is not that that we have loved you, but that you have loved us. And so we are above all things grateful for the fact that we know you. We're also grateful for your good work in your church. For what you're doing all across this globe, Lord. Your church, Christ's church, is being built by Christ And we are just grateful to to not only be yours, but to be a part of what you're doing in this world. I thank you for Pastor Shane. I thank you for his faithful labors here. I thank you for the good fruit that is the result of, of that labor and the labor of others, all, in fact, who are in this congregation. I give you praise and thanks for this. And I pray now, Lord, for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. Lord, we joyfully confess that we are nothing. And without your son, we can do nothing. And so the preacher in this next hour, Lord, I'm completely dependent upon you. I have no strength of my own that would avail for anything that is lasting. But Lord, I look to you. And I thank you for the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the scriptures for what we engage in this next hour. And I pray for my brothers and sisters. For Lord, we also acknowledge that unless you teach us, we don't learn anything. 
unless you're at work in our hearts, we don't receive anything. And we don't want this time to be wasted. So we ask that your spirit would take his sword in hand and do your work in our hearts, in our lives, this next few moments. Lord, may we be different because of what we see. And so watch over this time, we ask. Strengthen me, Lord, so that your word preached would be clear. And strengthen us in our inner man to be able to receive the things you've given to us. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Unity in the local church matters. It matters. It matters a lot. In fact, Jesus not only prayed for that, he died for that. In John chapter 17, you'll remember Jesus prayed that his people would be one, even as he and his Father are one. It's good to know, isn't it, that the prayers of Jesus never go unanswered. And Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, and now every one of us who have come to know him, we have not only been united to Christ, but we have been united by our union with him to each other. The unity that Jesus prayed for is not a unity that we produce. In fact, I would remind you this morning, we are unified. We do know unity. By virtue of our relationship with Christ, by virtue of our union with Christ, by virtue of the indwelling Spirit, we do know unity. But what we have to strive for, what we have to work at, is preserving that unity, manifesting that unity, enjoying that unity, living out that unity. And that ought to be important to us. If Christ died to, to, to bring us to God and to bring us into this union with himself and with each other, then shouldn't we have it in our hearts to glorify God by manifesting that unity, by working hard to preserve the unity, to enjoy the unity, to manifest the unity that is indeed a reality? Well, the church at Rome, they were struggling with some, with some disunity. And their disunity had to do with matters of conscience. You can read about this in the previous chapter, Romans chapter 14. There were some battles within the church about what one should eat. Meat sacrificed to idols. Should we eat meat? Should we eat only vegetables? You read about this in chapter 14. What day should we observe? These sorts of things. Things that were matters of conscience. There were battles going on in the congregation about this. And and the Lord through Paul gives instruction that should have helped them work those things out. But now in chapter 15, he he wants to, to nail this down. He wants to underscore it all. And in the midst of the 15th chapter, he actually not only exhorts them to live out their unity, he prays for it. He prays for it. In fact, the central theme of the verses that we've read, the central theme is found in verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you, right? God, would you give this? May he grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. 
according to Christ Jesus, as is fitting in Christ, as would manifest the truth as it is in Jesus. You see, this would tell the truth as it is in Christ. So may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the central theme. Unity in the local church that manifests the truth as it is in Jesus to the glory of God. In fact, can I tell you this, the preeminent issue in the verses that we've just read, the preeminent issue isn't even unity. Though that's the central theme, that's not the preeminent issue. There's a reason why we want to live out this unity. And the preeminent reason why we want to live out this unity is expressed there at the end of verse 6. So that, in order that, why do we want one mind and one voice and all of that? So that, with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is our chief interest. What pleases God, you see. What would glorify God? What would be right in the sight of God? In fact, look at verse 7. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us, To the glory of God. So this morning, what we're going to look at can be expressed this way. Church harmony for God's glory. Church harmony for God's glory. And I want to share five principles for pursuing the harmony that glorifies God. Five principles for pursuing the harmony that that glorifies God. Now the context within which we received this instruction, of course, as I said, had to do with conscience matters in the church at Rome. But the, the issues at stake here, the central theme expressed here, is larger than just matters of conscience. There, there are things that arise in local churches that divide people, and they're not always conscience issues. But the same principles would apply. And in fact, we can take the truth we're going to learn here, and in terms of application and the implications that arise from what we're going to learn here, the application should actually include things beyond local church life. I mean, God's concerned about believers walking in harmony with one another, not just in the local church, but but in every realm of life. I mean, is God concerned that husbands and wives in this fellowship have harmony in their marriage? Is God concerned that the Christian families represented in this this room, that you have harmony in your family life, parents and children and all of that? You may have believing friends who don't attend your church. You may know them at at work or where you go to school. Is, Is God concerned that believers walk in unity with each other even in those realms? So while it is true that what we're going to learn here is brought to us in the context of a specific challenge facing a specific church in the city of Rome, the principles we're going to learn here have to be applied in every realm of of our life. Five principles for pursuing the harmony that glorifies God. 
Right, here's the first one. Pursuing the harmony that glorifies God requires embracing an obligation. If we're going to walk in the unity that glorifies God, we have to embrace a particular obligation. Look at verse 1. Now, we who are strong ought, the word there is aphalo, it speaks of something that is an obligation. It speaks of something that you owe. We who are strong, we have an obligation. We owe it to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. What this statement has to do with is the fact that maturity in the Christian life, maturity brings with it higher expectations. Do you consider yourself to be a mature believer? Would you say that you've been growing in the faith? I'm not talking about some sort of proud way of thinking about yourself. I'm just talking about an honest, objective evaluation of your Christian life. Would you say now that you've been in Christ long enough, you've had enough teaching, you've received enough instruction, that what ought to be true of you is that you are mature? Not to say you're not maturing, not to say there's not an infinite way you know, ahead of you in terms of how you need to grow, but you could say that you're no longer a baby in Jesus. You're not, you're not a brand new believer. You're not just really getting a grasp on the truths of the gospel that God has brought you into experientially, but you've been taught enough now that it ought to be true of you that you are maturing in the faith. You're mature in the faith. Well, if that's true of you, there are certain things that you ought to be able to embrace now. There are certain obligations that you ought to be able to embrace. Let me give you an analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but maybe it helps. For the parents in the room, if you have been blessed by God with more than one child, if you have multiple children, then you know you have different expectations for your children as they get older. You don't expect the same thing from the littlest one that you expect from the oldest one. If mom goes to the grocery store and there's a 25-pound bag of dog food to be carried inside, you don't ask the 4-year-old to do it. But you ask the 14-year-old to do it. And when you do that, you're not mistreating the 14-year-old and you're not valuing the four-year-old more than you value the 14-year-old, you just understand there are differing obligations based upon maturity, age and strength and all of that sort of thing. And if your 14-year-old is maturing as he should, then he understands those differences also, and he's not put off by it. He doesn't Well, not all all the time anyway. He doesn't doesn't complain about it all the time. He understands, I would not expect my four-year-old little brother to do this because I'm older. Different set of expectations based upon maturity, based upon age, based upon strength, based upon those sorts of things. Well, this is true in the Lord's church also. In the Lord's church, we have stronger ones and we have weaker ones. We have people who've been in the faith longer and people who are just new to the faith, just have been saved. And everyone who is stronger has an obligation. They owe it to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. 
Who are the stronger saints here in Romans chapter 15, verse 1? Who are these stronger people that Paul has in mind? He includes himself in the number. Do you notice that? We who are strong. We who are strong. Well, he's describing people who have now learned the truth in a way that their conscience has been rightly informed so that they no longer battle with some of the conscience issues that they did when they were first converted. Remember, these people are being saved out of paganism. They've been brought out of idolatry. So when you talk about something like meat, purchased in the public meat market, meat that had originally been offered to idols, if you're fresh out of idolatry, I mean just newly saved, there's going to be a connection between this meat and idolatry that really affects your conscience. And maybe your position would be, I don't touch that, I won't eat that, don't serve that to me, I don't want to hear about it. I hate idols, I hate idolatry, and if I were to partake of this, in my mind there's a connection with idolatry. Well, you read Paul's letters and you recognize that the conscience can be instructed in such a way that that you understand that an idol is really nothing in the world. I mean, you, you would never want to be overtly involved in idolatry. You don't go to the temples. You don't go to their feasts. You don't do those things. But in terms of the meat, meat is just meat. And so if you were to purchase that meat in the public market and partake of it, you're not saying that you love idols and there's no connection between the meat and idolatry. Not really, because meat is just meat. And so your conscience has been rightly informed so that you're free to partake of that and you know you're not dishonoring God when you do. And the same could be said about the other issues, you know, in view here in chapter 14, days to be observed and all that sort of thing. So the stronger are those whose faith has been strengthened with truth in such a way that they view the world through the eyes of what's real, as informed by God. These are the stronger. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Now listen, for the sake of the one who informed you. See, this is on their mind. They're aware of this. They make this connection. So for the sake of their conscience, don't partake of it. And for the sake of conscience, he writes, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all Listen to this, to the glory of God. This is the chief thing, isn't it? What gives glory to God? Goes on to write, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. What a mature perspective, you see. This is a grown-up in the Lord, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Look back for just a moment in the 14th chapter. 
And look at verse 17. Romans 14, look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have. Have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. It's a dangerous thing to say. Well, you know, I'm not sure if this is right or wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. I mean, that's not how you live the Christian life. So if your conscience bothers you, don't don't plow through it. Don't proceed ahead. You don't want to live a life that says, well, I'm not sure this is right, but I'm going to do it anyway. That wouldn't be honoring to God. That's dangerous. Don't violate your conscience. But even if your conscience is free in this matter, you're rightly informed from the Word of God. You know you're free to do this. What you don't do is run over the conscience of your brother. What you don't do is say, well, what's wrong with this? I got a good deal on this meat in the meat market. And and, and I know my brother struggles with this, but hey, he came to my house. It's my dinner. This pleases me, so I'm going to serve it. No, you don't think about what pleases you. You don't destroy a brother for the sake of food. You care about what pleases him and what will mean his spiritual progress. Older people in the Lord, stronger people in the Lord, mature people in the Lord demonstrate their maturity not by flaunting their so-called superior understanding, but by sacrificing their rights for someone else's soul. That's maturity. And so we who are strong, verse 1, we have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. To bear, astazo is the word, carry a burden, put up with, Carry the heavier weight when it comes to the weaknesses, you know, the, the, the scruples of conscience that exist in someone whose faith is not yet as strong, someone who's not as mature in Christ. I'm willing to carry that weight. I'm willing to say no to me if it means that you're benefited. You don't accommodate yourself. This is the obligation. By the way, I want you to see that this is something we do responsibly. You notice, well, I'll get to that in verse 2. So let's just, let's just stop there for a moment and ask the question. Have you learned this lesson? Have you learned what it is to carry the heavier load if indeed you are more mature in Christ? Have you learned what it is to say no to yourself, to please, to help, to benefit someone else? And why are you obligated? Well, you're obligated because of God's love to you. I mean, even now, we're not going to claim, are we, that all the gaps in our understanding 
have been filled, that we, there's no place in our faith where we're weak, that there's no place in our faith where we lack understanding. Aren't we all, don't we all know a weakness? So we don't hold this position as some sort of haughtiness. We understand humbly all of our weaknesses, and therefore we remember how patient God is with us. How long-suffering God is with us. How He bears our weaknesses as He, deci- as he grows us and in a fatherly way develops us. We see how God patiently deals with us. So should we not then deal patiently with each other? This is the obligation of the strong. Let's, let's principalize this. Here's the principle. We are obligated to live unselfish lives in the Lord's church. We are obligated to live unselfish lives in the Lord's church. The way you demonstrate maturity is by living unselfishly. I wonder if we were to measure our maturity this morning. How mature are you? And we we measured it this way. How unselfish are you? What would it say about our maturity? The mark of mature saints is their unselfishness. In this context. Second principle for pursuing the harmony that glorifies God. Second, pursuing the harmony that glorifies God requires fulfilling a responsibility. So I don't just now embrace this obligation. Okay, I'm obligated to carry the 25-pound bag of dog food because I'm older. That's okay. That's as it should be. I don't just embrace the obligation. Now, as a result, I'm going to... Fulfill my responsibility. Look at verse 2. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. Knowing the obligation, now we can exhort each other to fulfill the responsibility. What he's describing in verse 2 is a mindset that ought to characterize the entire church. Faithful churches, mature churches, healthy churches are unselfish churches, full of unselfish people. So now the responsibility we ought to exhort each other to is this. Are we willing to say no to us and yes to one another? Are we willing to prefer our brothers and sisters above ourselves? Are we willing to serve the Lord by serving each other? Are we going to live unselfish lives? Are we going to actually give consideration To what is good for someone else, what will mean their edification, their building up in the Lord. And am I willing then to accommodate them to that end? Now here's what I was going to say a moment ago, and I should say here. This is to be done responsibly. So think about the family for a moment. What you don't do as a parent with your children, or what you don't do as an older sibling with younger ones, is you don't accommodate people in ways that affirm them in wrong. You don't accommodate people in ways that will actually lead to their harm. Everybody in the body of Christ has to learn that the truth of God is the standard, and we're all submissive to the Scriptures, and we all have spiritual responsibilities from the youngest ones to the older ones. So what's being described here is not something that represents passivity, but something that is productive in nature. If saying no to me is going to help you grow, then I'm more than willing to say no to myself and to help you grow. That's when I'm going to accommodate you. When it actually means your edification. When it means your building up. 
What I'm not going to do is give in to you in a way that affirms sinful thinking or affirms immature attitudes. We've got to help each other grow up in the Lord. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. This is a step beyond obligation, using that same illustration. Isn't it wonderful when the 14-year-old doesn't just say, hey, I need to carry in the bag because my four-year-old little brother can't do it or my seven-year-old little brother can't do it. I need to carry the bag. I understand that. I'm not upset about that. Isn't it wonderful when they take it the next step and they begin to think like this, how can I love my brother? How can I help my brother? How can I care for my brother? You know your children are maturing when they actually love their siblings, care about them, and want to help them. Well, that's true in the church as well. Do we think about how to help each other? We seek to please others. The word is oresco. Greek lexicon has this. A favored term in the reciprocity conscious Mediterranean world and frequently used in honorary documents to express interest in accommodating others by meeting their needs or carrying out important obligations. And in this particular Greek word is the idea of special worth or dignity in a relationship. By, here's what I want you to get. By serving others, we are saying, you matter to me. I care about you. You have worth in my eyes. This relationship, there's a dignity about it. It's important to me. Turn around the other way. When we live selfish lives, what we're actually saying is, you don't really matter to me. When you have a husband acting in a very, unself, uh, in a very selfish way toward his wife, men, I, I know you don't want to say this, but what you're really saying in that moment is, you don't really matter that much to me. Or, if, or turn it around, if a wife does that with her husband, you don't really matter that much to me. Or if that happens in a friendship, or if that happens between brethren in church, you don't really matter that much to me. So th- what we're being called to in verse 2 is actually an expression of the fact that we've embraced what God has taught us about each other. We are a blood-bought people. Every one of you who knows Jesus, you are precious to the Savior. Therefore, you ought to matter to me. And so if I need to sacrifice my so-called rights in order to serve you for your upbuilding, I am doing it joyfully, recognizing the worth you have by God's definition. Serving each other expresses love for each other. Serving each other expresses the worth of the person you're serving. Third principle for pursuing the harmony that glorifies God. We embrace the obligation. Stronger ones ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. We are willing to fulfill our responsibilities. A mindset's developed in the Lord's church of unselfishness. How can we serve each other? And in doing so, we're recognizing the worth that God has placed on His church. Third, pursuing the harmony that glorifies God requires remembering the divine standard requires remembering the divine standard. Verse 3, For even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, 
we might have hope. How do you live this out? Why should you live this out? Let's start with the, first, the, the second one first. Why should we live this out? Why should we live unselfish lives in the church? Well, you know why? Because this is what characterized our Savior. We are His followers. We are His disciples. We walk according to His standard and according to His example. And what example do we have in Jesus? Well, He did not please Himself. He did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. And that's our calling. Not to live lives where we say to ourselves, I deserve to be served, but rather live our lives in a way that we say, I've come to serve and to give my life for others, even as I recognize my Savior gave His life to save us all. I mean, I'll never serve in the way Jesus did. Jesus served for our salvation. And when I remember that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, needed nothing, that God needs nothing, but out of unimaginable mercy and grace, chose to atone for the guilty ones, the ones who had actually violated His laws, actually insulted His honor, that He he took the initiative to bring forgiveness to me for things I didn't deserve to be forgiven of. And then when He came into the world, when He chose to embrace an additional nature, a, a perfect human nature that He might live under the law of God, a sinless life, and then die on the cross as a perfect sacrifice, and then be raised from the dead so that I could be saved and you could be saved. When I remember that this was the infinitely strong one coming into the world to save weak ones, to save, to save helpless ones, to save from the human vantage point irredeemable ones. But He came into the world to to love me anyway and to save me. Christ came to the world to save sinners of, uh, uh, among whom I'm the foremost. That's our attitude. That's our mindset. When I remember this, what He did to save me, what He did to save you, and then I have the mindset that says I'm to be served. I've forgotten the example of my Savior. And there were many times when he, Jesus could have exercised His prerogatives and He could have done it Rightly. And yet instead he demonstrated great patience. Even with those who were sinning against him in that very moment. Christ could have justly crushed wicked men who were hurling insults at him as he hung on the cross. Two of them as near as his right and his left. You do know the man who was saved on the cross beside Jesus was earlier in the day, hurling insults at the very one who was suffering in his stead. And people were crying out, come down from the cross. You're really the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Not knowing that they were pleading for their own damnation. And what does Jesus say on that cross? Father, forgive them. What? For they don't know what they're doing. The infinitely strong one Demonstrating unimaginable patience on behalf of weak and foolish sinners. If God asks me to be patient with someone who's weaker than me, 
in this moment, in their faith, can I remember how Jesus gave himself for me and continues to be patient with me in all of my weaknesses. But do you notice, it's not just remembering Jesus in that straightforward kind of way through the proclamation of the gospel, but we also remember Jesus as in and just this principle in general as we survey the scriptures. Why do I live like this? How do I live like this? Well, I live like this through the encouragement that God gives me as I remember His Word and as I walk in His Word. And as a saved person, we have that capacity. Notice, Paul now brings into the picture Psalm 69 verse 9. But as it is written, he says, verse 3, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting Psalm 69, verse 9, which reads this way, For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. As, that, as the psalmist writes that verse, prophetically looking forward to what the Messiah would suffer. And what the Messiah suffered was the reproaches that were aimed at God fell on Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross. What was being displayed when those men were crying out all those insults toward Jesus? What was being displayed was the hatred of mankind for God. Amazing thought, isn't it? That Jesus on the cross suffered man's wrath toward God even while he was suffering God's wrath for man's sins. On the cross, he is suffering Wrath in two directions. Man's wrath toward God and God's wrath toward man's sin. And there he died to set us free and to make us right with God. He brings the scriptures in for us to remember. And in fact, then he adds this, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance... And the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Reflect on everything you have in the Word of God. And you're going to have commended to you the life of servanthood. Consider everything in the Word of God. You're going to have commended to you the life of unselfishness. How do I live an unselfish life? I remember the Scriptures. And God, working through His Word, imparts perseverance to His people. Encouragement to his people. And do you notice this encouragement has to do also with the fueling of our hope? So that through perseverance, verse 4, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. How do you live the unselfish life? You don't live it focused on the present. Can I just tell you, you'll never live an unselfish life if all you're doing is living in the moment. The way you choose to live the unselfish life, the way you choose to pursue harmony with each other, even though you have differences, the way you live this out is by remembering your future. Does this please God? Will He be pleased one day when I stand before Him if He surveys the way I'm behaving in this moment? Can you remember this is not the end of the story? Can you remember that one day you're going to stand before your Savior? And you want to hear well done. 
Can we be honest enough to admit that even sometimes when we feel like we've been striving to live unselfishly, sometimes we, we have the thought in our mind, is this, is this worth it? I mean, look at how this person continues to treat me. Or look at what my circumstances are like because of the choices I'm making to walk in accordance with Scripture. Is this worth it? Well, as you continue to go back to the Word of God and allow God to work through His Word to grant you perseverance and encouragement, what's going to happen is you're going to be focused again and again and again on the fact that this is not the end. And the reason we choose to live unselfishly and to pursue harmony is because of the great day that's coming. The Word of God will fuel your hope. The sure expectation of the future that God promises to His people. And so when you read about Moses, for example, who was called by God to lead a very stubborn people in the wilderness... And when you read about this man, who at the time was the most humble man on the face of the earth, and people are accusing him of mistreating them, why did you lead us out of Egypt? I mean, again, the reproaches that were really aimed at God were falling on Moses. Why did you lead us out of Egypt? Why did you leave us out here to die in the wilderness and all those those sorts of things? And then you have God at one point saying to Moses, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wipe all these people out. I'll start over with you. And what does he do? No. He intercedes for that people. He prays for this stubborn, rebellious people who mistreat him at every turn. He intercedes for them. Why? Because of the reputation of God. For the sake of the name of God. For the sake of the glory of God. God, don't do this. Praying in accordance with what God intended all along, of course. What an example of what it means to live this unselfish life. For the glory of God. Because he cares more about the glory of God than he cares about himself. And this is why he cares more about the people than he cares about himself. Or you think about Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers. Going to prison. All, all, you know the story. And there he is standing one day, the second highest in command in the land of Egypt. And his brothers happen to appear before him because there's a need. And here's his opportunity to execute vengeance if he should choose to do so. And his brothers know this. Once they know who Joseph is, they're scared to death. And yet, he weeps out of love for his brothers. And instead of taking vengeance, he takes care of them. And he makes this statement, am I in the place of God? He's able to understand the sovereignty of God over his circumstances. You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Trusting God's good purposes having a a larger picture than just the immediate circumstances, he's able to execute this unselfish living. And so the way we pursue harmony in the Lord's church for the glory of God is we remember the divine standards. We go back to the scriptures again and again. So we embrace the obligation. Mature ones live unselfishly. Therefore, we fulfill the responsibility. How can I please you for your upbuilding? How can I serve you for your spiritual growth? And I do this because I remember, I remember what God is teaching me in His Word at every turn. His Son being the chief example, the perfect example, but having even other examples, human examples, throughout the history of redemption displayed on the pages of Scripture. This fuels my encouragement, my perseverance, and my focus on my future. Fourth, pursuing the harmony that glorifies God requires 
desiring our chief end. Let me say it again. Pursuing the harmony that glorifies God requires desiring our chief end. Now, after this instruction, what does he do? Verse 5, he prays. He prays, and he prays with a certain end in view. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. There's the good news. God's at work in all of this. He actually does this. He gives us the perseverance we need to live unselfish lives. He gives us the encouragement we need to live unselfish lives. So God, now we're asking you to do this for us. May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want that? Do you want your life to resound for the glory of God? Do you want your life to be a testimony to to God's greatness? To what's true of Him? To His true character? Do you want this church to glorify God? Do you know that's your chief end? Do you know that's why God made you? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's, our, that's the reason we exist. And by the way, this is, that's where we know our greatest joy. You'll know your greatest joy in life when you realize what you were made for and you embrace it. When God's chief end becomes your chief end, you're going to know the greatest joy. God's chief end is His own glory. That's what He's working for. When your chief end agrees with God's chief end in your own mind and heart, now you're going to know the greatest joy. So why do I exist? I exist for God's glory. And if sacrificing my rights means your growth, therefore God's glory, I rejoice in that. If saying no to myself means your growth, therefore God's glory. If our harmony means telling the truth about what God produces in the lives of His people, the reality of the unity that we've been brought into in Jesus Christ. If our harmony tells the truth about that, then let's pursue harmony because that glorifies God. We can say it this way. The reason why sometimes we're content to have disunity is because God's glory doesn't matter to us as it ought. Husband and wife, you're content just to keep on arguing. I say this to you, loving you. You don't care enough about God's glory. All kinds of arguing going on in your home, and you're just content to let that keep happening. You don't care enough about God's glory. Because that's not telling the truth about who God is or what He produces in salvation. Do you care enough about God's glory to begin to choose to live unselfishly? Do you care enough about God's glory to begin to live a life that's submitted to His Word? What does the Bible teach about how we are to relate to each other? I will submit my mind and heart to that because the chief desire I have in my heart is to live a life that glorifies God. 
We embrace the obligation. We fulfill the responsibility. We do it remembering Scripture. And all of this reminds us that the reason I exist is for the glory of God. And I'm asking God to strengthen me to live like this because I have as my chief interest what is His chief interest. I want to tell the truth about who He is. And I want the truth of God to shine in and through my life. That's how you pursue harmony. The fifth principle, the last one, you see in verse 7. Therefore, isn't that one of the most beautiful words in the New Testament? let's, Let's apply this now. Therefore, accept one another. Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Therefore, in light of these truths, embrace each other. Accept each other. Welcome each other. Love each other. Serve each other. Outdo each other in serving each other. And do all of this for the same reason that Jesus brought you to the Father. Do this for the same reason that Jesus accepted you. To the glory of God. That's the chief thing, isn't it? That's what will lead us to live unselfish, harmony-pursuing lives. Because we care about the glory of the One who has had such mercy upon us. And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for these truths. Forgive us, Lord, where we have forgotten them. Forgive us where we have lived selfishly. Forgive us where we have not lived in accordance with the gospel. And may you grant to us to pursue these things with joy so that with one voice, with unity of mind and with one voice, we might give you praise and thanks in a way that reflects your true glory. Strengthen us to live lives that please you. That's our one ambition. To please you, whether at home or absent, to be well-pleasing to you. Father, strengthen us to that end. And may anyone in this room who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't have access to this unselfish living because they are fundamentally selfish in their lost condition, Lord, may you even today remind them and enlighten them to the truth that Jesus died for sinners. And He is a great Savior and is able to save them for forever if they will look to Him in humble faith. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.